Well, the things that uh, have to do with man ultimately fail. They don't always make good on their promises. They don't last forever. But the things that have to do with the Lord are like himself. They never fail. God's compassion will never fail or pass away. God's presence will never pass away. God's faithfulness will endure and will never fail. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one comma in the law to perish. The law itself will never fail. God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, will never fail, and his years have no end. And important for us to understand today, God's love will endure forever. It will never fail. And this theology of love that we're looking to today, that we're considering, it needs a a bit of nuance. It's not general love. We, we talked a little bit about this last week. It's not a general love like the, the world would define, a feeling that we kind of experience that just kind of happens to us. It's kind of a passive thing, not an active thing, love, that is. Uh, and it definitely doesn't include judgment. There is no right or wrong with love. There's only acceptance. This is the world's definition. But Paul's notion of love that never fails and, endure for, and endures forever in our text today is actually human love that is a response to the divine love. By simple faith, we receive the divine love of God in Christ Jesus. And this love that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things, that endures all things, is speaking of our love to one another, which is actually just a stream of the great river of God's love. And so Paul is actually going to narrow in his focus. And he's calling us to shape our lives around the eternal, not the transient temporal things. Using temporal gifts to help us live a life centered around the kingdom of God. That's the call. That is what Paul is directing the people to. Instead of using these these gifts, these transient uh, temporal gifts to help them center their lives around the eternal, they're actually just using them to build themselves up. Reason to be looked at. Reason to build their pride up. And so, living for the kingdom of God, those eternal things, is actually to love one another. So again, just to remind us about the context of Corinth, it was a big city full of the worship of many gods and many lords, and those worship of many gods and many lords is has taken part in the governmental fairs, the social clubs, the daily life. Uh, This is a huge wealthy city full of wealthy people uh, uh, that take great pride in in their religious and social standing. And it seems that this culture of Corinth has infiltrated and affected the church. And so there's all this disunity. There's all this elitism. I'm better than you because of this and that. There's all this divisiveness that's characterizing the culture of the church. And at the heart of that disunity, you remember, was this arrogance that was not compatible with the gospel of God. And so what does Paul do when he opens the letter? Well, number one, he thanks God for their faith in the Lord Jesus. They're a mess. Yeah, welcome to the club. But he thanks the Lord for their faith. But then to right away crush that arrogance, that disunity, he tells them that, I would ask you, 
if I were to describe to you the power of God, the last thing that you would tell me, if you didn't know, is that he would send his son to die. So Paul says right off the bat, to crush your arrogance, the power of God is a crucified Savior who came to us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, our redemption. This is our Messiah. How could we boast in anything? None of us were wise according to God's standards. None of us were anything according to God's standards. But he has brought us from death to life. How could we boast in anything but the Lord Jesus, Paul says. And so as he continues the letter, he's of course addressing a lot of confusion they have, but really he's wanting to fix the church's eyes on Christ Jesus, who is love. And so last week we considered in this chapter of love, if you will, how in 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3, that without love, all of our striving and all of our gifts are just used in vain. And then we considered in verses 4 through 7 last week, this personification of love. Ultimately, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, how he has fulfilled the law, uh, which is love, and how because we have life in him, we love like him. We love each other like he has loved us. And so we looked at how each description describes our Lord Jesus and how we live in him. And so all this chapter, Paul is showing us Jesus' perfect, unfailing love. It is in his loving us that creates a life of love in us. And all of this is by faith. He's showing that uh, these gifts, which they are very important, and they're very important to the Corinthians. These gifts that they take so much pride in are, are just that. They're just tools. They're just gifts kind of pointing and encouraging and preserving towards the greater and the better. And so he's trying to get them to look at the eternal uh, and not so much the, the temporal. Maybe operate in faith and not by sight. And so without any further ado, we will look and read verses 8 through 13. This is the inspired word of God, starting in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We thank God for his word today and every day. For our uh, time this morning, I have uh, a part one, part two. Let's look at what the text says. And then I have four reflections for us. And that fourth one being uh, the conclusion of our time this morning. And so let's get right to it, looking at the text to see what, what, what is being said here. Uh, in verse eight, uh, well, really, just a, a little more overview over what we just read. Paul's saying, look, the gifts are good, but they're secondary. What matters is love. We kind of got that down pat. The gifts are tools, but love is primary. 
And he tells us why love is primary. But it's important for us to know as we jump into this passage that I don't think this passage is conclusively telling us whether or not the spiritual gifts of the apostolic era continue today or not. Uh, But I am sure that God is telling us here that in eternity, when redemption is consummated, we won't need prophecy, tongues, knowledge, faith, hope, or any gift. Because they will all be sight, and all that will endure into eternity is love. That is what we have as we jump into this passage. So looking at verse 8, love never ends. Simply, love, uh, as he describes it here, he actually uses verbs to say this, love will never fail. And that is what he means by love will endure forever. It can't fail. It will never stop. It never fails. Love will endure forever. And he explains that love is eternal uh, by using those verbs. And so Paul is in this way telling the church of Corinth that you're actually prioritizing temporal gifts over the thing that will never fail, that will last forever. And in fact, the advantage of these gifts that you're taking so much pride in is only for a time. He says, as for prophecies, they'll pass. As as for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it also will pass away. These gifts are only for a time, but love will endure forever. See, as long as we have this imperfection and we're on this side of glory, we need the gifts. We need the help. But when that imperfection passes and we're in glory, we don't need the gifts. We don't need the help. This is the subject that Paul is pursuing for the rest of our chapter. So verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Our knowing this side of the new heavens and the new earth is imperfect. And I think, uh, I I agree with Calvin here that it's correct to understand uh, what Paul to be saying here is that we have knowledge and we have prophecy because we are imperfect. That is, we, we know in part, we prophesy in part. It's not that well, knowledge is partial, but if we keep working, we'll reach its completion. And prophecy is imperfect. And in part right now, if we keep working, we'll reach its completion. And then the new heavens and the new earth. No, he's saying we know in part, we prophesy in part. It's, it's imperfect. Or we are imperfect, and so we have these helps. But they aren't the, the full thing is, is what we understand here. Because verse 10 even tells us, uh, for when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, what is the partial? It's these gifts that we have to help us. Uh, that, those are the partial. So I think it's why we should understand it that way. Um, and again, we need these gifts because of our infirmities. The gifts aid us. And yet, uh, they will pass away when this temporal age passes away. And so verse 10 Simply the gifts which aid our imperfection in this race of the Christian life. They're no longer going to be needed when the perfect arrives. That's simply there in verse 10. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then verse 11, Paul says, when I was a child, what he he does here is basically say, here's here's what I mean. It's kind of a similarity, if you will. He says, uh, when I was a child, I had toys and and my parents talked to me in such a way that a child would need to play with and be talked to. But when I was a man, I didn't need those things, right? The things that children need are not the things that you grow up to need. And so really what Paul is saying is on this side of heaven, we're child, we're children, we're childlike. We need a lot of help this side of heaven because we remain imperfect. 
but when the perfect comes, as we read today, we will be presented in mature manhood uh, in Christ Jesus. And so these things which we need as children in this age, they're going to go away because we will reach the goal, the new heavens and the new earth. And then verse 12, uh, there's basically an explanation of, of what he means by this analogy with the child and, and the, the, the grown man. And then also maybe another similarity. For now, we're looking through glass. It's very, it's very uh, blurry. It's kind of obscure. And he, and he says looking through a mirror dimly, simply the mirrors back in that day were, were not like our mirrors today. It would almost be looking, maybe worse than looking in the car window. You know, when you're passing in the car and your head's about this big and your hair looks messed up and it's, it's like, wait, do I really look like that? I mean, it's, it wasn't a good mirror. So the vision is obscure, is what he's saying. So right now, this side of heaven... Children needing a whole lot of help. We have his word, but by faith we behold Christ. By faith we hold the law and the gospel. We behold the promises of God, the unfailing compassion and mercy of God. We behold it by faith through his word and in our experience, of course, but it's obscure or it's dim, not in that the scriptures are incomplete or not uh, able uh, to, to... to present us what we need to know for salvation. It's just that imagine when we see Christ face to face, how obscure it is, this, this side of heaven. This side of heaven we have, by faith we behold him, but soon it's going to be by sight. So that's that, that imagery there. It's like, look, this side of heaven, we're looking dimly, we have a whole lot of gifts, we have a whole lot of help, but remember what's coming. Remember what lasts. So let's not prioritize and boast in all of these gifts that are here really just because we're imperfect and we need help. And then here we are, like Paul is saying, taking all this pride, saying, hey, look at me, look at the gifts I have. It's like, brother, you know, sister, they're only there because we need the help. Uh, So, and then we get to, well, the last part of that 12, uh, but then face to face, for I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known when we, when, when the, this age passes and the new heavens and the new earth come, will we know God in his full essence? Absolutely not. To know God fully as he is in his essence, we would need to be God. You can, you can bank your hope on this. We will know God as much as a creature can know God. We will be perfect. We will be with him. We will not be him. So we can't know God in his essence Because he's still God and we're still creatures. Resurrected in his glory, in his presence, in his eternal love. Knowing him, fellowshipping with him. But he's still God and we'll still be creatures. And that's a good thing. Uh, And then finally, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. It's an interesting... uh, grammatical thing where, where he makes the list and just says these three. It's like, okay. And what he's saying, ultimately, faith, hope, and love are all important because where does our love come from? Our love doesn't, our love for one another, the love that actually imperfectly but really fulfills the law. We don't have it in and of ourselves. So where does that come from? Well, by faith, when we apprehend Christ, we're given a new heart. 
we're given a heart that accepts God's love for us in Christ Jesus, then is transformed and actually really obeys and loves. So even faith produces love, right? But how about this? The hope that we're talking about, this new heavens and new earth, that, that we will be with God forever. How do we have that hope? By faith in Christ Jesus. So faith produces this hope, this hope of glory. And uh, this faith and this hope of glory results in God pouring his love into our hearts. This is Romans 5, 3 through 5. That we might live out of that faith, live out of that hope, live out of that love. Uh, So these three, and yet at the end of the day, when the new heavens and the new earth comes, faith is no longer needed, it'll be sight. Hope is no longer hope, it'll be reality, it'll be eternity. Love will remain. Love will remain. And so, uh, that's what the text says. I want us to reflect on this now. And so, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And I want to focus on that last part. Faith becomes sight. uh, Hope becomes reality, eternity. But love will last. Love never ends, verse 8 says. What does this mean? Again, I'll remind us that Paul's notion of love Here, in chapter 13, he is speaking of of human love, but it's the human love in response to the divine love, right? We receive the divine love of God in Christ Jesus by faith, and that love creates in us a life that loves. That is why we're known by how we love one another. Love is eternal, and it cannot fail. And this love, which is poured into our hearts by the Spirit of God through faith, is from God. And our love for one another, which is the fruit of faith, will never end because it is rooted in the unfailing, enduring love of God. What does all this mean? What does all this mean? Well, this notion of love that we love one another with, or what Paul is describing here, this love that we have for one another, where, is it, where does it come from? What is it rooted in? Well, first let's think about how behind the curtain of existence is a God who is love. Perfect Trinitarian love and fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is the reason redemption was planned. Behind redemption is a God who is love. Who plans that He will redeem a people. Who plans to send God the Son to die. Redemption, history exists because God is love. Love is not God. Let's get it correct. Love is not God. God is love. And He created a world in which He will, because He loves, uh, show us what that love is by sending His Son for us. And so, now we have in 1 Corinthians 13 is an example of how has the Christ loved us. We went through that last week. How all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. But again, what does this mean? We get it. Kind of sounds happy and romantic. God is love. He planned redemption. We're loved by him. And our love for one another is rooted in the fact that he's first loved us. But, w- but what does this mean? Because when I doubt the truth and my feelings ebb and flow and they're screaming at me a different story, will his love run out on me? I understand that his love planned redemption. But the here and now, when I forget to pray, 
And I go seasons of ignoring my need for God and his help, and I become so ungrateful. Will the Lord grow resentful with me? Will he be kind to me still, and will he help me? I understand that God is love, and all of this is existence because of that. But when I go seasons filled with jealousy and discontentment, and I don't want to, will the Lord's patience run out for me? When I'm struggling with the same temptations and the same sins, and temptation has its claws in me, and I'm begging for help, and there doesn't seem to be help around, is the Lord going to bear with me? Will He cover me? Will He protect me? When I seek to do good and I fail, will the Lord endure with me? What circumstances are you in this morning that you're relying on God's love to never fail? Is it some sins? Is it temptation? Is it trials right now? Is it sufferings that you're experiencing that you're relying on God's? Maybe it's a time of waiting. Time of hoping and praying with no answer. What is it that you're relying on God's love to never fail? And I want to set up this answer to all those questions with an illustration uh, that I read from Sinclair Ferguson that has served me so well over the last few months. Imagine how you feel when you know something extremely hard and difficult is coming up in your life. The nearer that that time gets, the more it kind of dominates your mind, right? You know it's coming, and, and everything about what you're thinking and feeling is just dominated by this. And you've got so much tension and focus that's taken over everything, and everything and everyone else's problems just end up in the background. You've experienced something like this. Now, imagine that that difficult experience is your crucifixion. And you know that you'd be alone. That your closest friends would abandon you to suffer agonizing pain and asphyxiation. And you would then feel that God who is love had himself forsaken you. What would you do the day before? What would you do the day before? End of illustration. I'll tell you what love did. John 13. He washed the disciples' feet. I'm going to go there briefly just to read that account. Our Savior, this is the day before all of what I just described. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and he was going back to, to God, knowing that he would do what they decided and, and before time began that the Christ would do. He knew crucifixion was next. Being forsaken by the God who is love, his Father, is next. What does he do? He rose from supper. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, it's because the word became flesh for us, for this purpose. Jesus showed the disciples that he left his heavenly honor to kneel into their filth, to kneel into our filth, stooping down to us, faced with our sin. He's going to be sacrificed for it on the cross. And his love lasted until the end. The foot washing was just a scene that showed that his love lasts. His love never ends. His love never fails. The Lord Jesus came to earth in every way that you and I fail to trust God. In every way that you and I fail to truly love. The Lord Jesus did it every moment of his life. Every motive motivated by truth and by love. Every thought motivated by truth and by love. Every action motivated by truth and by love. Fulfilling the law's demands, the Lord Jesus stood in your place. Lived the life that we must live. We're going to be counted righteous before God. And then the day before he goes to die our death, he's showing us, I will love you to the end. He washes their feet. So that question Will his love fail? When you're struggling with all kinds of things, it will not. His love never ends. It never runs out. It never runs dry. And the Lord Jesus goes, and that curse was laid upon him, and he drank the wrath of God dry, resurrected from the grave. And you and I have received his righteous life as if we had never sinned, or as if we had kept the law completely. We've received his death Forgiven as if we had never sinned. And in him we live before the Father who is love. Who died for us. The Lord Jesus died for us. This is love. And this is the love that is poured out into our hearts. So that Romans 5 of love never ends. And in this whole chapter about how we love one another. Is rooted in the fact that this love that I just described has been poured into our hearts By the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's been given to us to what? To seal us for that day of redemption. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It is this love to which Paul is bringing the Corinthians back to cause them to not love their gifts, but to use them. To use their gifts and love for the building up of the body of Christ, knowing that eternity is coming. And so when our love is failing to trust God, and our love is failing to love one another, and we're in the snare of pride, where do we go? Where do we go? Well, we cry out to the Spirit of God that fills us with God's never-ending love. Christ made himself helpless, emptying himself to the point of death, So that we would always have help. So that we could work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to work his good pleasure. He is sure to be our help because love came down to us and he loved us to the very end. He's beside the father now, loving us, interceding for us. His years have no end. Love literally never ends. Christ Jesus, who is love, will live forever. And we are in him. 
And this is all grounded in Romans 5, 8, right? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, his love endured to the point of death for your sins, not his own. So may this give you hope, brothers and sisters. May this give you hope that God's love for you will never fail. That concludes the, more, the, the longer meditation or reflection, number one. I want to move on, number two, as we considered maybe what this love that never fails is, how it is the Lord Jesus. Uh, and now that is the love we have for one another. So reflection number two, our love for one another will never end. Our love for one another will never end. So this chapter is about our love for one another, right? But of course we've understood how that could be possible because he first has loved us. And this is describing the Lord Jesus. But now I want to show us how the story doesn't end there and how sanctification and our love for one another is a marvelous gift from God. And so if you want to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to just look at a couple verses and make some comments. I want to uh, maybe use some other scriptures to prove the thesis of, of our love will never end. And this is what Paul is talking about. So 1 John chapter 4. That is before 2 John. Should help you out. Bad joke. So our love will, for one another will never end. I want us to look at chapter 4 in 1 John. Uh, put your eyes on verse 7. I think it will be up on the screen, but... I've already asked you to, to go there, so if you're there, just put your eyes on it. Beloved, let us love one another, this is verse 7, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So man, if we're going to love each other, that's a big requirement. We've got to know God and be born of him, the way that they're uh, asking us to love, right? Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice the order here. In order that we might love one another, as the law guides us, we need to know God. We need to be born of God who is love. And the way that that has happened is the Lord Jesus has come to us, taken on our curse, given us his righteousness, and we have been brought from death to life. This is God's work. And now we know God, and as a result, we love one another. We, we really love one another. It's not asking us to prove that God loves you and that you love him by loving one another. It's saying because God has loved you, you love one another. It's not asking you to prove anything to God. This is truth to accept. We've been born of God. We love one another. John is encouraging these saints uh, in this way. Moving on down to um, verse 18 in the same chapter. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loves, because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Perfect love casting out fear. This is what God's love for us has done. God's love should actually produce, or, or God's righteousness should produce much fear in us. We deserve his wrath. But as a result of his love, he's the just and the justifier. And now we are adopted sons of God. And his love for us casts out all fear. We don't fear God's judgment. We're grateful. We're, we're his sons and daughters for crying out loud. What else could we do but, but be grateful? And we still need his help to love one another. And the point here is that we love because he first loved us. So we can never think about how much we don't love one another as earning or not earning favor with God. Where do we go when we're struggling to love one another? Or when we're trying to, you know, am I in the faith and I'm looking for the way I love you guys? Well, first of all, if we really understood our sin, we would never find assurance in the way we love one another. We couldn't. None of us love each other to the point that it would earn us righteousness before God. But because God has loved us, you have been freed from your sin to love each other. You are free to love. No longer being a slave to sin and resentment and envy and jealousy and strife and just trying to prove yourselves to each other. You got nothing to prove. It's a single person in here. We've all received the same grace of the Lord Jesus and we all have been brought from death to life. So we should walk around here assuming that we're all struggling sinners who want to believe the best out of each other, are struggling to do that, who are wanting to believe that we all want to love each other, are struggling to do that. And what is our hope at the end of the day as we live our life this way? He first loved us. He first loved us. God's perfect love for us in Christ continues throughout our life to cast out all fear and final uh, condemnation and final judgment. And what makes Christian love Christian is that it was brought about by the love of God for us. It's rooted in the morally perfect character of God. Our love for one another has started by faith, it'll continue by faith, and it'll, brought to, it'll be brought to completion by faith in the new heavens and the new earth when we no longer need faith. But that love will continue. Our love for one another will continue in the new heavens and the new earth. What God has started in us, He just admitted, we should love one another, we want to love one another, but it's, it's, it's far from perfect. In heaven, our love for one another will be perfect. Our love for one another will be endless. But between now and then, we live by faith as it pertains to God's love for us, our love for one another, our justification, our sanctification, our glory. And so let's reflect, number three, how we live by faith. How we live by faith. I'm going to shoot back to 1 Corinthians 13 and point out that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In this imperfect state that we live in, we see Christ with the eyes of faith through the Word of God. The Bible is the mirror that reflects Christ to us. All of God's promises that are yes and amen in him. And we live by faith when it, comes, when it comes to believing God, what he said about how we are to love one another, being rooted in his love for us, as well as 
our justification, our sanctification, and our glory where this kind of life even exists. Our loving one another exists in the realm of sanctification, but when we say that God has first loved us, therefore we love, what we're saying is God has justified us, therefore we're being sanctified in one sense. Faith in Christ, right? Uh, obedience, this, this loving one another, doesn't make God's love for us count. It's because God loves us that we love one another. And we've got to keep that very, 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 very clear. Obedience, our love for one another, can never be the ground of our acceptance before God. The only righteousness that can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect. And in every way, it must measure up to the divine love of God. And we just all said amen to the fact that we don't, even post uh, faith in Christ, love one another as we ought. So therefore, our love for one another for one another could never give us favor or assurance before God when it comes to justification. God's not waiting, right, to, to drop the hammer the next time you slip up. The battle is over. The victory's been won. Christ has finished redemption. The law, uh, the law has been fulfilled. It's punishment satisfied, and you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. You've given, been given his righteous life. You're justified. By faith, it's a gift. The Lord has done this to you. And now it is precisely because you're counted righteous in his sight by faith that you will live a life of faithfulness. It is because he's done that to you, you will live life, you will live a life of faithfulness. So this is that piece of living by faith, even as it pertains to sanctification and glory. Living by faith, we're trusting Christ to keep us, to preserve us, to help us, and to finally save us. I like what Martin Luther says when it, uh, here, I came across this, about faith and, and works. Because of faith, we freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise God who has shown us such grace. Thus, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. The thing is, is when you are justified, you will be sanctified. And so in that regard, you can't change the two. Yet we can never base our justification on our sanctification. Our grounds for acceptance before God now and forever is what Christ has done. It's done. He did it. It's over. Because of that, we've received it by faith. We will be faithful. We will be sanctified. We will produce works. Faith results in our sanctification. Ephesians 2, you will have works. You were dead and you were made alive to walk in these good works which God planned and prepared for you to walk in beforehand. There's no question about it. But the thing we've got to remember is that this too is still a faith. Sanctification is not designed to be measured. It's not designed to be always operated in the world of sight. It too is of faith. And so we should never look to our sanctification to find acceptance before God because even our best works in this life are imperfect and they're stained with sin. Yet, living by faith, it is possible, it is impossible for us not to produce fruits of gratitude. Living by faith, it is impossible not to produce uh, fruits of gratitude because we are grafted into Christ. Because we are grafted into Christ. John 15, 5. 
It's because you're connected to the vine, you are going to bear much fruit. He will do it. What a gift it is to know that the Lord is causing us both to will and to work His good pleasure. And if you know the Lord is doing that, if you know the Lord is doing that, and that the goal of the Christian life is that you're going to get Jesus, we will see Jesus. We will be with Jesus because of what God has done for us and to us. Because God has loved us. We're on this race that finishes with seeing Jesus. What we have now is dim and what we have then will be full and complete. Going back to verse 12. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians that they've lost the eyes of faith. Therefore, they've prioritized all the temporal things which regard to this life. What we can see now over the hope that we can't see. So, so question then. All of what I'm saying makes sense and, and is true. How much is a lack of love rooted in living by sight this side of glory? How much is a lack of love for our neighbor a fruit of prioritizing the temporal over the eternal? Beloved, what ways have we lost the eyes of faith as it pertains to what will last? Maybe we are just so full of impatience and, and just always envying, so resentful, trying to fight it, not bearing with all things, not believing all things, not hoping all things, because we've lost the eyes of faith. Because we're only focused on what we see. Because we're focused on the temporal and forgetting the eternal. This is kind of natural for us to do. We all just operate off of sight so much. So how can I help us this morning? Should I threaten us? Should I scold us to love more with the law? We've all admitted that we want to love and we want good things that the Lord says we, we want. And we all struggle. Get caught up. How can I help us this morning? Well, the best way I can encourage you is what I've already done. I've told you that you're secure in Christ. You're righteous because of Christ. I've told you that you will produce fruit. That too is of faith. We're trusting the Lord in this whole process. That's why we're here today. But there's another thing that I can do. I want to encourage your heart by reminding you that because you are Christ, your faith will become sight. Maybe remembering glory, we might live in light of it by God's help. So number four, this will be brief as we close our time. Faith will be sight. Faith will be sight. And I want to, I came across this story, R.C. Sproul, when he was a kid. As a young man, he would often help bring his sick father to the dinner table. And after his father's death, he had this re recurring dream in which he would meet his father. But his father wasn't changed. He was still sick. He was still weak. And R.C. couldn't understand, you know, why, why am I having this dream? It, it would puzzle him and it would even haunt him that he was seeing his father after death and he wasn't well. And then one night he had a dream that he was in heaven and once again he met his father, 
But now he was well and he was strong and he was able to guide him around. And after a while, R.C. asked his father, Dad, where do we go in order to see the glory? And his father said, Son, we don't need to go anywhere. The glory is everywhere. Every illustration falls apart. If, if, if R.C. was in heaven, he would know he was in the glory of God. But it's a, it's a, it's a great picture of like, when, we, when our faith becomes sight, glory is everywhere. The love of God, we, we won't ask those questions. Will, will the love of God last for me? Well, it's still, we won't ask those questions anymore. We won't have to. And we will be enveloped by the love of God. I want to read a few verses for us to help us think further about that. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no, uh, no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamp of the Lamb. Imagine, brothers and sisters, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that illuminates all of heaven. We will. We will see Jesus with these very eyes. No longer will there be anything accursed in the new heavens and the new earth, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Finally, hear these words. 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body will put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, saints, this is good news, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your work, your labor is not in vain. The love of God never fails for us. Let's pray.